Let's begin with this idea, right, that everything is interesting, 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 interesting. Everything is interesting where they take everyday topics and bring new light to the subject of science, 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 science. Only what are our bodies made of? Well, a bunch of different molecules. So to put this in perspective, Kira and Kira. Hello again. Hello. Everything is interesting. There's so much information out there. Good morning. Welcome to Everything is Interesting. Hi, Jefferson. Hello. In this episode, we wanted to tackle the subject of romance. So first, we'll find out why throughout history, the anatomical heart and not the brain seem to be the part of our bodies that we so often associated with love. And then we'll talk about what's really going on inside our bodies, chemically and physically, when we experience the sensation of love, like I imagine many of you did yesterday. So when we're in love, especially romantic love, most of us like to talk about our feelings, you know, in terms of our hearts. So like, I love you from the bottom of my heart. My heart is broken. She has such a good heart. I know I love them because I feel it in my heart. And when we get candies, they're not little brains. <laughs> okay. Valentine's Day theory. candies aren't like tiny little brains. <laughs> but the heart's not like a box that gets filled up. It expands in size the more you love. <laughs> See, it's not a box, Jefferson, full of candies. Mm -hmm. No. Sorry <laughs> to brain on your heart box Love is parade. not like a box of chocolates. No, I do not want to be your friend today. <laughs> but isn't that what they say? Sorry. All right. Well, okay. So, but from what we know about neurology, our thoughts and emotions are primarily driven by a very much different organ than the heart, our brain. So what is all the fuss about the heart when it comes to love? Why don't we say things like, I love you from the bottom of my brain? I don't know, but I'm going to start doing it now. <laughs> right? Aside from our perception, the heart doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It is to see its likeness plastered on Valentine's Day cards and wedding invitations is kind of strange. A better fit for the heart might be as Halloween decor, because when it comes to the anatomical function of the heart, it's all about blood. blood. So despite being only about the size of a clenched fist, the heart is one of the most powerful muscles that we have. You know, it moves blood through our entire circulatory system by contracting and relaxing. And it is this heartbeat that is one of the many things that keeps us alive. So without the flow of blood to deliver oxygen and nourishment through our bodies, we'd be in trouble. And as far back as we humans have been doing anatomical experiments, we have known that the heart is an essential organ. Way, 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 way back, ancient Egyptians considered the heart to be the most important of organs. Their take on the role of the heart was that it was the center of a series of channels in the body that delivered blood, air, saliva, nutriment, waste, pretty much everything throughout our whole body. They also thought that the heart would, was the organ that controlled wisdom, emotions, personality, and that it was the center, central container of sort of good and evil so that we have one the, accumulated We have life. the ancient Egyptians to blame for why we give little candy hearts rather than candy brains. It may be the beginning. Yeah, right. I mean, it may have started there. Right. It, that's actually, it was a pervasive thought through a lot of uh, cultures. The ancient Greeks revered the heart as the driver of all thoughts and feelings. They believed it to be the center of the soul and also the source of all the heat within your body. As they recognized that the heart was the most vital organ, it was probably a logical step to associating it with one of our most and, powerful emotions. And how did we, how did they know this? So how did they think this? Was it because they knew if you stabbed somebody in the heart, that would make them stop living? Or if you stabbed somebody <laughs> in the brain, they'd still sort of kick around? I don't know if they, the thing is, I don't know if they really had empirical evidence to tell them this. I think what they were finding though from like their experiments, that the heart was a pretty important piece of our yeah. anatomical body. And then I think they just sort of extensively I'm, I'm were like- i my stabbing. I like my stabbing. Uh, an, then maybe I, there I, was some I, stabbing, hypothesis. you know. I mean, maybe just, there was you know some mythology saying? in there too. Yeah, Egyptians well, just poke that. Weird like, things. Just poke that? Oh, it must be love. Is that how you do it, Jefferson? I'm going to stab you everywhere 
you tell me when you stop yeah. breathing. Sharp right? object. <laughs> this really means I love you. This is sadistic. Well, okay, so the idea, you know, that love and the heart were synonymous was also probably reinforced by the actual physical sensations that we feel sort of near that area where our heart is when we get overwhelmed by love. But as it turns out, a lot of those sensations that we have physically, they have much more to do with the brain than they do with the heart. It just took us a while to figure this out. Can I just say, I, I don't feel that. Am I an alien? Maybe. I don't. I don't get D- Jefferson. Does that happen to you? What does what happen to me? Like when you're in love, does it? Do you feel it in your chest? Do you feel like I don't know? And if you're if you're experiencing heartbreak, does it feel like your ribs are crushing in on your heart? We got a text in saying you have no heart. That's they don't mean you. I think they meant me. <laughs> From the stabbing. How would you know? Well, How I'm would you know? alien. So when my heart gets sense. stabbed, it hurts, I promise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as far back as 250 BC, uh, early Greek physician Alcmeon deduced from his studies on animals that the heart was not a pr- the primary organ controlling our senses and thoughts. Meanwhile, Alexandrian biologists concluded that the seat of intelligences lay in the brain, and they were the first to discover the existence of the nervous system. Then jump way forward to the 1820s, where Jean-Pierre Florenz did the first disturbance but informative experiments that provided concrete evidence that actions originating in the brain rather than the heart um, by showing that um, if you damage an animal's brain, its motor function, behavior, and ability to reason will be directly affected. It's like the stabbing thing I was talking Mm -hmm. about. That actually, (laughs) yes, you you were foreshadowing. Um, and it was only a few years later that Paul Broca, who is the famous French anatomist for who the Broca's area is named, uh, greatly further... No, sure, I was wondering where the Broca's <laughs> area... Every time the Broca's area came up, I was like, I wonder... Is that, where is that? Where, where That's the really the whole reason we did the show, actually. Sally Broca? This, is the, you know, this is the climactic moment Rupert of the show. Paul Broca. Paul Broca of the Broca Brocas. And we're done. This is what happens when you're a nerd and you think that everybody gets all of your references. Yeah, no, it's good. So anyway, he greatly furthered the field of, of um, brain science by showing that lesions in certain areas of the brain corresponded to deficiencies in specific areas of learning or behavior. So these discoveries and, and others opened the floodgate for brain-related research. And throughout the 19th century, our understanding of how the brain works and what the brain controls has grown by leaps and bounds. We now have a much clearer picture as to where our thoughts and feelings, including the emotional and physical sensations of love, actually come from. So if you've ever been a teenager... I've been one. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Then you probably know what it feels what like. It's like, like I'm so older now. Love. No, never. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't like gotten there yet. exactly this age. So you remember what it feels like to be in love, right? You sweat a lot. You forget how to talk. Your cheeks turn red, and inevitably, this is coupled with some very um, d- adult feelings in the body. Right, right. And although it may seem like those reactions are happening, you know, like in the deepest part of your undying soul, uh, falling in love is actually triggering some very specific biochemical changes in your brain. Specifically, love appears to be driven by sort of a cocktail of hormones. Helen Fisher, an anthropologist from Rutgers University, who's kind of the expert on the subject, suggests that these chemical changes occur in three very distinct stages. Lust, attraction, and attachment. So let's start at the beginning with lust. That sounded, I'm married, keep going. I love you, baby. And that I don't mean you, I mean my wife. <laughs> He's looking at a photo of you her right let's now. start at the so beginning adorable. with lust. His eyes are gleaming. Initial feeling science. That initial feeling of sexual desire is a product of testosterone. Although if you're a female, estrogen helps too. But testosterone is what gives you the feeling of sexual desire. So why do we really need this surge of testosterone? I mean, one reason might be because it helps you sort of blaze right over any hesitation to initially make a move. Because testosterone is the chemical that makes you feel sort of aggressive or pointedly fixated on achieving a goal. 
So it's not just the furtherance of toxic masculinity. It's not only so one can have what one should not have. It's also that. It but is. that testosterone is what gives you that, that feeling. Are you saying you're familiar with these feelings? We're going to derail. I can derail this so I, I quickly saying, on this I'm topic. I'm trying to be a better, better human being. This is turning to the, the Burn Jefferson show. No. With, with every passing quarter. I'm just trying to get better. I'm just trying to be a kinder, better human being. But re- So rejection is scary for people. Yeah, so, right. So you're saying, I guess, that less babies would be born if we didn't get that initial surge of testosterone courage. Yes, exactly. We'd all just be cowering in a corner, wondering if people liked us or not. <laughs> she will be mine. Oh, yes. She will be mine. I love Garth. That, that, oh, was, no, that was Wayne. Wayne. Oh, right. my goodness. Oh, jeez. Oh, I said that. We just lost here. a lot That's of so listeners. Sad, yeah. Go on. I think they might not have caught it. It's been a while. All right. Let's forget I ever did that, and let's move right on to stage two, shall we? Attraction. So this is the stage of punch drunk love. The hormones released during the attraction stage are responsible for making you feel like you might actually be losing your mind. You can't sleep. You can't eat. All you can do is think about your one true love. And there are a couple chemicals driving this very strange behavior. The first to show up is norepinephrine, which is cousin to adrenaline. But why would you need a hormone usually reserved for stressful situations when you fall in love? Well, this is the chemical you can blame for your sweaty palms and your racing heart, and plus the rush of excitement you get when your crush walks into a room. I must have slipped. (laughs) Wayne, um, what do you do if every time you see this one incredible woman, you you think you're going to hurl? I say hurl. If you blow chunks and she comes back, she's yours. If you spew and she bolts, it was never meant to be. So to clarify, the first speaker was Garth. The second speaker was Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I've seen that movie like 70 times. Was, We're getting two, known that. two different kinds of lessons oh, yeah, here today. Yeah, we are. The useful one and Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in dangerous situations, um, norepinephrine solicits a response from your sympathetic nervous system, which controls unconscious reactions that prime your body to do active movement, like fight a lion or run away from a lion. Norepinephrine probably shows up in love because it also focuses your attention on one thing or person. It also increases your experience of euphoria, cluing you in that attraction is a good thing, according to the part of your brain whose main goal is procreation, of course. It's also worth mentioning another stress hormone that increases when you're in love. It's cortisol. And this is probably because you're kind of interpreting an uncertain romantic situation as a crisis. And as cortisol levels rise, serotonin, which is that good feeling hormone, becomes depleted. Because serotonin regulates depression and anxiety, lower availability of serotonin is responsible for the intrusive, maddeningly preoccupying thoughts, the hopes and terrors of early love. Yeah, which is why it can feel so crazy. I mean, you're already sweaty, your heart is already racing, <laughs> and now you're also having these, like, you know, you're crazy going insane. terror you're going thoughts. Insane. So shortly after the stress hormones are in full gear, you move on to the pleasure and reward hormone, dopamine. It's not uncommon to feel like you're addicted to a person at this stage because your brain is flooded with this hormone. Tell me about the show, man. I love you, man. And I love you too, Terry. No, 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 I mean it, man. I love you. No, I mean it. I love you. No, you don't, man. So whether you're looking to get high on love or high on drugs, dopamine is the reason. It's the neurotransmitter that triggers the feeling of reward. And it's this feeling that motivates, that's the motivating factor behind a lot of the things that we do. Uh, It's the dopamine high someone's looking for when they reach for a piece of chocolate cake and also when they reach for cocaine or heroin or alcohol. Dopamine can show up in several places in the brain, 
But drugs, alcohol, and sex cause a concentrated dose of the hormone in, to flood into the mesolimbic pathway, which is an ancient evolutionary reward pathway in the brain. So when you do an action that has a positive outcome, like, um, okay, Jefferson, this is where you close your eyes and you imagine. Okay. Okay, so you, you, you close your eyes. Okay, so imagine you're grabbing someone's hand and you give them a kiss. Yeah. And they give you a kiss. And hopefully it's someone you wanted to kiss. <laughs> I guess that's kind of key to all this. <laughs> so the action that you did was you grabbed their hand, you leaned in for a kiss, and they the reward was they gave you a kiss, right? So the mesolimbic chain of neurons tells you to repeat that action again and again to get that kiss reward. And the By the mes- way, you guys make all this stuff real sexy. And I don't mean like you as human beings. I mean, this whole topic really turning the love into science, <laughs> like is, dealing with dopamine. That is the exact opposite say, of what is, we were trying okay. to do. <laughs> I didn't mean it. Really. But hey, science is sexy. And everybody here looks very professional. I just mean the words on the page here, what we're talking about. This is this is the way to do it, I think. I, would, I would posit that, that sex it's is science. An analysis yeah. of dopamine levels is, I think, primarily the way to to do Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that just make you want to like get out there I and got you be a like, box hey, of dopamine, honey. hey, I, can we hang out? Because I need a hit of dopamine, <laughs> seriously. Oh, and you're the one to give it to me. Right. I mean, it's, it's more than that. Well, okay, so this mesolimbic pathway, right? It also tells the brain's memory centers to pay attention to the details of the event that's going on. So like, how exactly did I grab their hand? How long did I hold it? Did I make eye contact? How was I breathing? So that exact set of actions can then be repeated again for another reward. In order to maintain elevated levels of dopamine, you might find yourself obsessing about grabbing your crush's hand again. And okay, I mean, probably you're obsessing about something more exciting than hand holding, but this is FM radio, so family friendly. (laughs) And if you're suddenly unable to get that dopamine rush from the person that you love, you might end up seeking it out elsewhere, like, you know, at the bar or at a party. So wait, you're saying people drink when they're heartbroken rather than just like delve more deeply into the political intricacies of Oregon and beyond as some people might do? We all have our coping mechanisms. I just quietly work on Sudoku puzzles. I don't know about you guys. But you know who does drink when they're heartbroken? Fruit flies. Fruit flies. A study from the University of California showed that fruit flies who were sexually rejected drank four times as much alcohol as those who successfully mated with ladies. It's also probably like the most alcohol that they can get in their 24-hour lifespan. Alcohol like you turn off a fruit fly and they go like drink, do they, like drink some Jamesons. They're just living yeah. a condensed life. They're like, oh man, I've got to get drunk for my whole life right now because I've been rejected. The only chance I had. I've been wondering what to do my PhD on, and I think it's going to be uh, the the alcohol preference of fruit flies. I love it. Okay, so let's get back to the initial question, which is why would your brain release dopamine that makes you feel addicted to getting those kisses from your crush? Well, because as we all know, if you collect 100 kisses, a stork appears out of a brick-shaped box, and you collect the baby trophy. Level, level up, level up, you win. The procreation game has ended. No, not really. You but get a okay. trophy. Okay, I know. This whole process is crazy, right? These hormones make you crazy. Luckily for all of us, romantic love is, according to the experts, quote, involuntary, difficult to control, and generally impermanent. Which leads us to step three, forming a deeper connection. Tell me, when that first show is over, will you still love me when I'm an incredibly humongoid giant star? Yeah. Will you still love me when I'm in my hanging out with Ravi Shankar phase? Yeah. Will you still love me when I'm in my carbohydrate sequin jumpsuit, young girls in white cotton panties, waking up in a pool of your own vomit, bloated, purple, dead on a toilet face? Yeah. Okay, party, bonus. <laughs> that was Wayne. That was Wayne. As we all know, puppy love doesn't last forever. Eventually, you end up in a pool of your own vomit. So eventually, that starry-eyed feeling gives way to something much less intense, but longer-lasting, the feeling of attachment. 
So emotional bonding is largely contributed to a hormone called oxytocin. Skin-to-skin contact, and especially sex, uh, causes the pituitary gland to release oxytocin, which promotes feelings of security, calmness, and contentment. But why form romantic attachments at all? I mean, if you've ever had to end a long-term relationship, I'm sure you've had the thought that, gee, life would be way easier if we never fall in love in the first place. (sighs) And you're right, it would be way easier. But did you ever hear the phrase, we're staying together for the kids? Well, that's exactly what your brain wants you to do, and why you have hormones that specifically cause romantic attachments to form. The weird thing is that humans evolved from chimpanzee-like primates who were heavy on promiscuity, and the males were completely hands-off with the offspring. But at some point, something changed in the environment that meant that offspring had a better chance of survival if they had parental care from both their mom and their dad. What we think changed is that humans evolved to have babies that are vulnerable for a long period of time, comparatively to other primate species, at least. So regardless of what actually happened, we think it was... It was um the, the former nature started selecting for humans who had a desire to pair bond so that the dad would stick around and help raise the kid, which at the anatomical level means that they had more oxytocin receptors in the pleasure areas of their brains. Oxytocin is released when the couple mates and then the hormone uh, stimulates a pleasure response from the brain, which didn't happen in their ancestors' brains. So it's, so the simple way that I understand it is it goes from dopamine, like the thing you get from heroin, mm-hmm. to like oxytocin, the mm-hmm. thing you get from like chocolate mm-hmm. or, you know, just like a hug. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I, don't you get... Do, uh, dopamine from chocolate too, though. I don't remember. You probably get. Probably. I mean, yeah. every everything good comes from chocolate. I think is what you're looking for there. Right. Fair. Anyways, before um, before all of this kind of evolutionary change in the way humans bonded and paired, oxytocin had only really been showing up in mothers and babies to help them form emotional attachments to each other. But now it was being released in both males and females, causing the desire to form a mated bond. The so wait, are you saying are you saying that 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 dads, mm-hmm. chimp dads, mm-hmm. didn't love their babies? Well, I don't even know if no. you can really attribute the feeling of love at this yeah. point <laughs> didn't have to a, the didn't, relationship didn't have a hormonal, they didn't have a hormonal no desire attachment. to do parental care. Right. The dads yeah. were very hands-off. They move along, find me yeah, another chimp lady. Like, mm-hmm. Let's just okay. get you pregnant and right. go on and get someone else pregnant because procreation of the species Yeah, Behavior among chimp uh, populations and especially dads towards maybe not their own babies but other dads' babies is is not it's not a Valentine's yeah. Day topic. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, that's it's true. really intense. There's a lot of violence. But and then it evolved like we're working at the American Society of all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. Pair bonds. So okay, so let's see where were we? It, it's now oxytocin is being released in both the males and the females, causing this desire to form a bond. And the selected individuals ended up being able to release this hormone. At all life stages, not just during infancy. So there you have it. Apes were able to fall in love. And that's us. So we're apes that are in love? We're, yeah, we're apes who are able well, to fall you know, in love. Jerry Falwell would more going beg on. to differ. The next, I mean, <laughs> you are going to hell. <laughs> the next, well, that's, yeah, but we knew that. Well, we, you know, at this point, I mean, I, don't, I didn't look up the timeline, but we've been able to have this sort of evolutionary, we've gotten to this point where, like, the, the pair bonding is normal, right? Because we have these babies that need, like, two years worth of care to be able yeah. to grow up. And, and, you know, it doesn't really matter who pair bonds. It could be yeah. anybody pair bonding to each other as long as we have enough people around to keep these little yes. little naked babies alive <laughs> and long enough to keep themselves alive. Exactly, so yeah. That's, we've come a long way from the initial apes. 
yeah, evolutionary biologists just look at things way differently. So despite what we know today about the hormones that give us feelings of love and that the origins of love reside in our brains and not our hearts, the notion that we feel love in our physical or metaphorical hearts persists. And perhaps that's because love isn't something that can be defined precisely, even though we know about all the hormones. We've aimed a lot of microscopes at the brain, and yet love is still the least understood of our emotions. Perhaps no, how, no matter how much we study the cause and effect of our feelings, love will always sort of remain a little mysterious. But also, uh, in terms of the whole, you also did make a case that the heart leads to love. So, so mm-hmm. I see this all through the candy controversy, mm-hmm. right? Should we give little, <laughs> okay. that, that's the whole, it's hard for mm-hmm. me to get past it. Well, should we be giving little tiny hearts or little tiny brains? Now, I'm going to say the little tiny brains would not sell as well as the little tiny hearts. It I just know to that to be true. <laughs> it Although, has a market of several people. Imagine, you're thinking, you're thinking anatomical brain, listening. though. Like, let's say yeah. we were giving out little candies in the anatomical shape of the heart. Yeah, that'd be gross. Yeah. It's a fair point. But what I would be, totally what would be the eat those, candy like, shape of a brain. Please. I don't know. It would Probably be, the same as a heart. It would look like <laughs> yeah. a, like a good, That's the easier way to do it is just to say that the Kira and Kira version, when you pass those out, those, those are just candy brains. <laughs> <laughs> they, they resemble the shape of a brain more than they resemble the shape of a heart. Just say that. In fact, maybe it was subserf, subser, subversive. That's what I'm looking for. Maybe it was merely a subversive move by the candy manufacturers to move us away from the false understanding of the heart to a more correct understanding to the link between the brain and love. This whole time. That is Whoa. far-fetched, but I'm going to let you run with it. But I'm going to say one other thing, okay. and then you guys can wrap us up. This I've loved this segment, and we really appreciate you, that it, you made the connection between the heart and blood. Mm-hmm. And between, and there is a connection between blood and love yet, or at least, at, yes, at least between blood and sex. Sure. I mean, the blood is important for carrying all your hormones through your body. You, your Some other stuff, too, but we can move along. And heat, too. I suppose oh. body heat is an important aspect. Like, I didn't actually end up getting to do research. Into, I think like, he's Eastern. getting a little more adult with the topic, but this is oh, a little but not to be But not to be silly, but yeah. actually to say, I mean, if you're stabbing people and wondering, <laughs> that's how that's like your science. You don't have the Mayo Clinic. You just got like a little pokey knife and like, but oh, the, oh yeah, I think that's the thing there that does it. You know, what conclusion are you going to draw? I'm shutting oh. up now. You guys go ahead. Well, I was going to say, too, that I didn't really get to research any kind of Eastern medicine, like most of this history that we talked about comes directly from Western medicine and, and kind of the, the forefathers of that. And then I know that in some, like I think Chinese medicine, the heart is associated with um, like heat and fire, which also might have contributed to, you know, Yeah, oh, we could go down a whole and, other tangent right, so road with that there's one. There's like a whole bunch of reasons that we weren't able to cover that Next could possibly year, have led. everything is interesting. You're on extra. Oh, but yeah. We oh. never run out of information. Anyway, to wrap this all up, I would just like to leave this to Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I think he put it very nicely with a clip that we have. It's only with the heart that one can see clearly. What's essential is invisible to the eye. That was Everything is Interesting. This is X-Ray. In just a moment, we'll have everything is stuff that we learned. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to KXRY Portland, 107.1, 91.1, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Kira and Kira, that was wonderful. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ditto.